This morning as we continue in our series in Hebrews is from Hebrews 11 and Pat Fish is going to come and read that for us now. Hebrews 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she con considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as innumerable gra grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has pre prepared for them a city. Continuing in verse 32, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, 
Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Pat. Boys and girls who are signed up for Story Keepers can head out to Story Keepers now. As the kids are heading out, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. Uh, a well-known passage to many of us, but one that uh, we want to understand in a fresh way today. Here you speak to us as the God who speaks and the God who calls for faith in our lives. So may this be an encouragement to us, no matter where we are in our own journeys of faith, that uh, you would speak to us clearly this morning. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just begin by uh, thanking all of you for uh, your prayers uh, for our family over the last few weeks, for your understanding at us being uh, away over Easter. While we know we've been sparse on, on details, and that's really for the sake of Duncan's privacy, I just want you to know that, Tara and I want you to know that your prayers have sustained us in a, in a deep, deep way. These, these have been, and frankly still are, some of the toughest weeks that we've experienced as a family. And so we're, we're so, so grateful for your prayers. Sorry. In God's providence, um, however, God not only has gifted us with your prayers over these past weeks, but he, I'm grateful to God that in his, in his providence, he gave me Hebrews 11 over this last couple of weeks to study and to meditate on uh, during this time. As he, many of you know, Hebrews 11 is referred to as the Hall of Faith. As a preacher presents this gallery of faith-filled giants for our consideration. It's a, a chapter that is poetic in its cadence, it's panoramic in its historical sweep, and it's imminently, imminently relevant in its challenge to us. It's also a, a 
chapter, to be honest, that could be a whole sermon series in itself. Indeed, a number of years ago in one of my previous churches, I, I handled the chapter as an entire series. But today we're going to look at it in one fell swoop, uh, because I think that's probably how the preacher intended uh, it to be read. And just to get our bearings again, the preacher in the sermons address, addressing an audience of wearied, disillusioned, and defecting or close to defecting Christians, uh, tempted to give up on Christ and go back to the old ways of the, the, the Mosaic Covenant. And that specific temptation is not necessarily one that many of us have, but as we've uh, worked our way through this book, we've seen how, how the temptation for them to go back to the old covenant has been somewhat equated to us just giving up on Christ and returning to the ways of the world. And that certainly can be a temptation for each of us. The same pressures that the audience, original audience faced come upon us. So at the end of chapter 10, the preacher mentioned the pressures of suffering. Chapter 12, we'll see next time, he mentions the pressures of shame and of sin. So the question is, what's the Christian to do in the face of all the pressures that we deal with in life, all the trials, all the heartache? Well, here's what the preacher had told us at the end of chapter 10, we saw a couple of weeks ago. He said, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So the question is, what's the response to be to all the pressures that we face as Christians? The preacher says, it's the obedience of faith. And then he almost seems to anticipate a, a follow-up question, which is, okay, well, what is this faith that we're to have? What's the faith that's to prevent us from shrinking back from a life of pleasing obedience to God? And the answer comes in Hebrews 11. What the preacher so marvelously does in this chapter is not an abstract uh, academic treatise on faith. It's really a picture book. He says, look and listen at these ancient saints who show us how to press on in faith and then go and do likewise. So here's how we're going to sum up this chapter in one sentence today. It's really that this is the, the core of it, that God's commendation comes only to those who live by faith. We'll think about this in three parts. First of all, a definition of faith. Secondly, the examples of faith. And thirdly, the character of successful faith. God's commendation comes only to those who live by faith. So first then, a definition of faith. Look again at verses 1 to 2. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Now, notice that I called this first point a definition of faith, because if you've spent any time in the Bible, you probably have become aware that faith is, as a biblical theological concept, is large and round and rich. And what the preacher gives us here really just encompasses just a few degrees of faith's circumference, which he's totally happy with because he's not trying to write a systematic theological definition of faith here. His aim is simply to get this congregation to keep running the race all the way so they get to the finish line. And so as he does so, he defines the character of faith here as certitude. 
Faith is characterized by a dynamic twofold certainty. First of all, he says faith has a, a future certainty. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith already possesses in the present what God has promised in the future. And then secondly, he says faith has not only a future certainty, but a visual certainty, the conviction of things not seen, that faith possesses the objective certainty of events announced, but as yet unseen. And so this future and visual certainty of faith means that faith is not just a feeling. Like in the line from the musical Oklahoma, oh, what a beautiful morning, oh, what a beautiful day. Obviously not written today. I've got a wonderful feeling. Everything's going my way. That's not faith. Faith is this solid conviction that makes the future present and the invisible seen. Faith has at its core this massive sense of certainty. And it was because they possessed and acted on such faith that the people of old, as the preacher says here in verse 2, received their commendation from God. But notice then that as well as, 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 well as that, that faith that is confident and certain cannot be irrational. Look at verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Preacher says, by faith we understand. Faith involves our minds, it involves our thinking, it involves our reasoning, and that immediately challenges the dominant cultural viewpoint on faith, which tends to be that faith is contrary to reason, that it's a, a refusal to face facts. Mark Twain put it like this, faith is believing something you know isn't true. More recently, Richard Dawkins stated it this way, faith is blind trust in the absence of evidence even in the teeth of evidence. It's a process of non-thinking. Well, that's certainly not the preacher's view here. Faith, he says, involves understanding, or we could perhaps put it this way. By faith, we conclude from the evidence. What's interesting is that those who write about the philosophy of science tell us, tell us that science actually works in the same way, on the same basis. By faith, Scientists conclude from the evidence. If you think about the scientists who've been working on the COVID vaccine over the last year, you know, in the early stages of their experiments, I don't want to sound like I know too much here, but you know, they, they basically they put up a theory. They start with a premise, which by its very nature is an assumption. It's something that they can't prove. But from there, they start to ask questions that assuming this premise, does this explain what is happening? What's governing the things that we're observing? They test the case. That's how scientists understand anything. They start with a premise, and then they ask whether this accounts for what they see. So as one philosopher of science put it, quote, the way that scientists decide which theory is the one that really is right and true is by seeking the theory with the greatest explanatory power, end quote. That is, the theory that best explains what happens becomes the reigning theory. That's how science operates. But when we move to the bigger questions of life and meaning, the same principle operates. So if we think about the question that Hebrews 11.3 is really addressing, how do we explain where life comes from? Well, we explained it in the same way. By faith, we conclude from the evidence. You start with a premise, and then you ask, does this explain what I see? Does it explain what I experience in this world? And Christians are people who have decided that if you start with the premise of no God, 
then the universe doesn't make sense. It's not coherent, and it doesn't account for what is out there. But if you start with the premise that there is a personal God who created this universe by his very word, as we're told in Hebrews, then that would account for what we observe, whether in terms of life or ethics or anything. Faith begins with thinking, with understanding, with reasoning. So the Christians believe the Bible, at least in part, not because there are no intellectual challenges with it, but because every other faith premise, every other alternative theory of trying to explain the universe is far worse, in our opinion, and our, by our, our deduction, in its explanatory power. Every other worldview has more problems, more contradictions, more incoherence. And whether you believe that or not, the bottom line is you have to at least engage in thinking. Faith involves understanding. What the Bible calls you to believe, what the Bible calls you to believe, it's calling you to think, to really think, perhaps for the first time. So the faith is more than thinking, it's more than reason, but it's certainly not less than thinking. By faith, we understand. After his initial definition of faith, the preacher then moves to this, these examples of faith, this picture book of illustrations of what he's talking about, beginning in verses 4 to 7. Let me read those verses again. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now we start now to hear this refrain over and over again by faith, which is really shorthand for acting on the basis of faith, or we could even expand it out further from the, the general context of the whole book to say that it's acting on the basis of God's word, namely his promises and his warnings. It's important to, to remind ourselves that Hebrews does not start in chapter 11. It actually starts, believe it or not, in chapter 1. And what did we read in chapter 1? One, one, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So the ark is this, chapter one, God has spoken, chapter 11, people believed him. That's, you can summarize it as, as, as quickly as that. And so we are to live by faith because we live in what God has spoken. We live on the basis of his irrefutable promises. And on the basis of what God has spoken, we read these Old Testament saints demonstrated a faith of future certainty and visual certainty. Well, these verses in 4 to 7 get us going in a tightly structured little section in which the preacher really gives us this wonderful summary of the life of faith from start to finish in just a few verses. So we have Abel, who actually illustrates the start of faith, how you're accepted before God. 
Interesting that the preacher doesn't seem the least bit concerned in the questions that we tend to ask when we read Genesis 4 about why was Abel's sacrifice accepted and Cain's wasn't. He's not trying to provide a series of comprehensive mini-sermons on each of these characters. Rather, that all the preacher focuses on here is, is that by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice. And right there, he's, he's intentionally drawing a parallel between Abel and what he's already told us back in chapter 9, verse 23, how Christ has made a better sacrifice for us. That just as Abel's better sacrifice meant he was accepted and made right with God, so we are accepted and made right with God by faith in the even better sacrifice, that of the Lord Jesus. So Abel illustrates the start of faith. And then Enoch comes next and demonstrates the continuing character of the life of faith. You may recall Enoch just gets four verses in the midst of a genealogy in Genesis 5, but in the space of those four verses, we're told twice that he walked with God, which the preacher here paraphrases as simply living a life that pleased God, a life that results in the reward of heaven, but for Enoch, a reward of heaven without actually passing go, that is, without actually passing through death. The preacher here clearly has the end of chapter 10 still in mind, and that quote from the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk that I read a few moments ago that spoke of God's lack of pleasure towards the one who shrinks back from commitment. So he now presents Enoch as this this, uh, shining example of the opposite, that Enoch by faith had not shrunk back, but had been resolute in his commitment and thereby brought pleasure to God, and so was commanded and rewarded. So Abel illustrates the beginning of faith. Enoch demonstrates the continuing character of the life of faith. And then Noah Noah thirdly shows up and shows us the climax of the life of faith, which is salvation from the wrath to come. Preview of what's still to come with the others in this hall of faith. I think Noah's faith is presented as a a kind of a trifold faith, which is a faith that's in a divine word about things as yet unseen, that results in confident action. Let me repeat that because I think that's actually what the the preacher here is wanting his audience and us to to hear and and command and to emulate. It's faith in a divine word about things as yet unseen that result in confident action. And so with Noah. Noah trusts God's warning of a flood that lay some hundred years in the future and therefore was impossible for anyone to validate or verify And yet by faith, he builds an ark in obedience to God, despite, I'm sure, countless ridicule and people teasing him and mocking him. Notice there's nothing here about this faith being simply a letting go and letting God. God wasn't going to build the ark for Noah or drop it out of heaven. No, God was calling for a faith that acts, that obeys, that works. The life of that kind of faith is the only life that receives a commendation from God. Faith in a divine word about things as yet unseen that result in confident action. Well, the preacher then moves us along in his gallery of faith to to his two main examples, who are namely Abraham and Moses. Both examples follow that similar pattern we just saw with Noah. And with Abraham, the preacher highlights two incidents in Abraham's life. The initial call on his life in Genesis 12, and then 
the call to sacrifice his son Isaac in Genesis 22. We actually thought a little bit about the sacrifice of Isaac back in Hebrews 6 in February. So let me just focus on the first of those two incidents this morning, uh, the, the call from God on Abraham's life in Genesis 12. That's what is addressed here in verses 8 to 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So Abraham receives a divine word, a command about a place as yet unseen that he was to receive as an inheritance. And by faith, he acts in confidence, leaving the familiar to go to the totally unknown. He receives this call in a place called Ur, Ur of the Chaldeans. In a sense, at a time when his whole life was laid before him, a life of status and security, but then God steps in and disrupts everything. Stuart, and Stuart Barton Babbage uh, was a distinguished Australian pastor of the 20th century, and in his office, there hung four photographs of open desert, almost identical to each other, it seemed. When visitors would ask about the photos, Babbage explained why he hung such similar photographs side by side. He said that while he was on site of the ruins of ancient Ur, he had aimed his camera for, uh, in, uh, in, toward the north, toward the east, towards the south, towards the west, and in each direction had taken a picture. And whether one looked to the north or the east, to the south or to the west, beyond the walls of Ur, there was nothing but sand. Ur at the time of Abraham was a city with a high standard of civilization. It was a fertile place watered annually by the flooding of the Euphrates. But beyond the city walls was simply empty terrain into which God called Abraham to go. And Abraham faithfully obeyed God's call by leaving the familiar and the secure and going to the totally unknown. Faith in the divine word about things as yet unseen that resulted in confident action. But for Abraham and for all these Old Testament saints, their, their faith of future certainty and visual certainty was not ultimately fixed on things of this world. Their faith actually was focused on the same place as ours is to be fixed. So look at verses 13 to 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The two great promises to Abraham and Moses and their descendants were these, the land and the people. It was for these two grand realities that these two great patriarchs lived and died. But the writer of the Hebrews is telling us that they realized by faith that the physical land that God was giving them was not the ultimate promised land. It was only a pointer to, to a better land, a far country, as Andrew Peterson calls it in his album, a heavenly one, a city. That was the homeland that by faith they were seeking. 
And so the faith of both the Old Testament saints and New Testament saints, i.e. us, looks through the portal of God's promise and sees a future homeland, a better country, a heavenly city. We're going to have to skip over Isaac and Moses and some of the others for the sake of time. I encourage you to read through those later today, perhaps, just to note how the various individuals' faith uh, is, it follows the same pattern in a divine word about things as yet unseen that results in confident action. But I want us to go to the final section of the chapter that Pat read for us, because it teaches us, thirdly, the character of successful faith. Look at verses 32 to 38 again. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Now, by this point, the preacher realizes he, he can't really do much more than simply list the names of others who have demonstrated such faith. But what's particularly important to see in this passage is that these examples come in two distinct sections. There are, in effect, two mini-lists here. And the first is from verse 32 to the first part of 35, and it's of those who faced overwhelming odds, and yet they triumphed in the face of adversity. Each of those mentioned in this section, we've actually looked at in various sermons over recent years, indeed some just in this past year. So it was Daniel who is mentioned here, who through faith shut the mouths of lions, Daniel's friends who by faith quenched the power of fire, the women mentioned in verse 35 who received back their dead by resurrection were two women we encountered in our series on Elijah and Elisha. And the preacher just keeps shooting out these action words in rapid succession in these verses. They conquered, enforced, obtained, stopped, quenched, escaped, became strong, put to flight. They're just fabulous examples of faith that acted in bold confidence. And the fact is we love these kind of stories. They resonate with us because we love stories of people fighting against the odds and winning, whether it's overcoming the diagnosis from the doctor or of a business rising from apparent failure. They're great stories. But if your understanding of faith essentially ends at the beginning of verse 35, then you're doomed. Because life as it is in this world so often doesn't fit that framework. In this life, there isn't always a happy ending. And the preacher knows that. So he's careful here to point out that biblical faith works out not only in those readily seen as victors, but also in those seen as victims. Which is why in verse 36, we read the word others. There were others who had faith, biblical faith, Hebrews 11, future certainty, visual certainty faith, but their lives went in a completely different direction. These faithful saints were tortured, mocked, 
flogged, chained, imprisoned. They were stoned, sawn in two, killed by the sword. But as a result of holding firmly to their faith, they ended up destitute, afflicted, mistreated in deserts and mountains, dens and caves. So in the first list were those who through faith experienced triumph or deliverance from certain death. In the second were those who trusted God just as equally, maybe even more, but for whom there was no earthly intervention or miracle. What's the lesson here on the character of successful faith? It is this, that a faith that doesn't need success in this life is the ultimate successful faith. And the reason such faith doesn't need success in this life is because its focus is beyond this life. Look again at verse 35, using the Christian Standard Bible translation. He says, women received their dead, raised to life again. Other people were tortured, not accepting release so that they might gain a better resurrection. How can one resurrection be better than another resurrection? I mean, is this a velocity thing? You know, one's slow, one's kind of more like a rocket launcher or something. No, it's not that. What the preacher means here is that it was a better resurrection because it was a resurrection not just back to life on this earth, as happened to the women's sons in the first part of that verse, or to Lazarus, or to the the 12-year-old girl that Jesus raised from the dead, or others in the Gospels, but it's a resurrection to everlasting life in the world to come, in the better country, in the heavenly one mentioned by the preacher in verse 16. That if the future land is a resurrection land, then it stands to reason that the future people should be a resurrection people. And how does that come to pass? Look at the final verses of the chapter, 39 to 40. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. God has provided something better for us. Here's another better in this book. But this one is the foundation of the better country and the better life. It refers to the one who has provided all the betters in the book of Hebrews It's the crucified and risen Jesus. It's because Jesus came and died once for all for our sins and rose from the dead as we celebrated last Sunday that we have faith that is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen, a future certainty, a visual certainty, because it's all been secured by the death and resurrection of Jesus. A faith that doesn't need success in this life is the ultimate successful faith because it's a faith founded on the better promises that come through Jesus. You go to any hall of fame, whether the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or a Sports Hall of Fame, and you'll be presented with musicians and athletes whom God has gifted with extraordinary talent that most of us, frankly, do not possess. That's partly why we marvel at their abilities, because we don't possess those abilities. But the preacher's purpose in presenting this hall of faith is completely different. He lays out this gallery of Old Testament saints as examples of faith that we can emulate. Indeed, we must emulate, because the life of faith is the only life that pleases God and the only life that is commended by God. So let me finish with this challenge that comes from one of the commentators I read this week. He says this, How would you and I live today if we believed absolutely that God existed and loved us completely and had a destination for us that made all this world pale in comparison? 
How would we live if we believed that God cared about our every action and every concern and wished to reward us richly for our faith? How would you and I live in the face of opposition if we believed in God, really believed as if our whole lives depended on it? You say, but I do. I do believe absolutely. I believe with all I am and all I have. And how would you live differently if you did not believe? Would there be much difference? If all I am and have and do differs little from my unbelieving neighbors, then I have embraced their world and their values and fool myself by saying I am living for another world and kingdom values. My life needs to be radically different in what I embrace, the values of a heavenly kingdom. When I live by faith, I then will be the one to whom God can bear witness and one who bears witness to God in such a way that others will be stimulated to faith. My life will portray that faith works. Then I will be a hero in the best sense of the word, for I will live a life that helps others and honors God, end quote. Friends, God has provided something better for us than that which he gave to all these faithful saints mentioned in this chapter. He's given us Jesus, which means we have even more reason and resources to demonstrate the kind of faith exemplified in this hall of faith. It's those who live by such faith whom God commands. So may each of us be those who one day stand before God and hear the verdict, well done, good and faithful, faithful, faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, it is tempting to look at all these Old Testament saints and marvel at their faith and say, I could never do that, I could never be that, and yet it's not a question of resources. You have given us something even better in Jesus, the one that they looked forward to, but the one whom we look back on and know all that he has done for us, the one who's given us his spirit so that we might live truly by faith. Help us to, to be able to live this life to, to hear your word, respond to your word, a word about things as yet unseen for us, and respond with confident action so that one day we will indeed receive the commendation from on high from our loving Heavenly Father. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>